Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are here tonight in our satsang. For those of you who just dropped in this satsang, ever since last year, I have been asked to continue a rendering of the teachings, actions, words of Jesus as presented in the Gospels and how they can be interpreted from a yogic standpoint, especially from the standpoint of a tantric yoga, yoga with chakras, with energies, studying levels of consciousness and all those things. And um, that was because in the year 2006 or seven, many years ago, I had done a series on the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, and people who watched those satsangs, they witnessed that it gave them a lot of aspiration, a lot of motivation, a lot of spiritual awakening, and that, of course, is exactly the power of Jesus, that Jesus is always moving the souls of people. Anybody who listens carefully is being moved and motivated, and so, even before these uh, sad circumstances in Agama started last year, I had started with the third gospel, the gospel of Luke, and it's a bit of a long one, and uh, ever since more than one year, I'm going on doing satsangs on the gospels of Luke. These satsangs, again, they are... I'm not a Christian preacher of any kind, and I don't belong to any Christian denomination in particular, like being a practicing Christian of any kind. Um, we are doing these things because the yogis of India understood and accepted Jesus very much. They loved Jesus, they venerated Jesus, they considered Jesus to be a great yogi, they considered Jesus to be a divine model like you would like to be like Jesus, you would like to model Jesus. If you would become the greatest yogi in the history of the world, then you would like to do what Jesus did, which means to change the world in three years like nobody else did. And uh, therefore, Jesus has a very powerful mark in the modern yoga, starting with the 19th century Ramakrishna and other and other very great yogis, they all of them embraced Jesus and considered his teachings utterly relevant. And that's why when we are here again, we are not chasing just for some Christian quotes and so on. We are trying to do what the yogis do. We are trying to find out who we are. Why we are here? Who better to ask than Jesus? Because there are only two possibilities. Either Jesus was a schizophrenic hoax, and then asking him is a total waste of time, or Jesus was God as he claimed himself, because otherwise he was a liar, a megalomanic, a cheater, whatever you want. But if, he, if what he said was right, then who else to ask better, Sir, Guruji, teacher, or why not, Lord, God, who am I? Why am I here? How do you want me to live my life? What should a human being be? What should a human being do to be able to fulfill their destiny? 
Is there a meaning of this life? Like, are we born for something? Or is it all just carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and the whole thing is just a damn coincidence and an accident, and we are accidents without God, without past and without future? There's no meaning. We come from nowhere, we go to nowhere, and the whole thing is just a terrible waste of time. All we can do is just behave egoistically, and while we are here for 80 years, let's take advantage of this extraordinary accident. There has been a weird accident which created a weird thing called life, and we are a product of that life, and somehow ever since we are five years old, we start enjoying ourselves, and when we are 80, we die and disappear, and therefore, let's just uh, suck the marrow out of life. That's all you can do. Just you know, take advantage of this, and if in the process you kill, you maim, you steal, you step on other toes, or so, what does it matter? Afterwards there is nothing and there will be no consequences anyway. And the fact that people remember you or not is a very doubtful thing, because people don't remember some John Doe from India in the 10th century who behaved nice and was vegetarian, didn't even want to eat animal flesh and so on, but people remember Genghis Khan, who was a patent murderer, who was a genocidal murderer, a mass murderer, you know. And people remember Genghis Khan. If I say Napoleon or Genghis Khan, everybody knows and is not horrified completely. But uh, John Doe, uh, Mr. Singh from India or whatever they were called in those days, nobody remembers. And thus, even to be remembered, then it's better to be a genocidal Genghis Khan than to be Mr. Nobody from an Indian or Ukrainian village from somewhere on this planet. No? And thus, even if, it's a, even if the whole thing is a total accident, then what is the usefulness of living a life? You know? Then we should try to be like Genghis Khan. Kill a million people and humanity will remember that you have been great once. There will be at least a trace in the memory of humanity. If you are like the shogun of Japan who made piles of severed heads and so on, then at least humanity will remember. Oh, the first man who unified Japan was the Ieyasu Toukawa or something, you know. And thus, I'm saying I'm rambling about all these things just to show you a very simple element. If people have questions about who am I, why am I here, is life having a meaning and how should it be lived, is there a successful completion of life? Like, is there a way to live your life so that in the end you can say, yay, I won, I made it. Is there such a thing? Are some people one in a million or whatever, one in a thousand are some people winning the lottery of life? And if some people may, might be winning the lottery of life, how do I do to win it also? Because just uh, drinking margaritas on the beach apparently doesn't do it. So what will do it then? That's why we are interested to talk with Jesus as yogis, as seekers of the truth. As seekers of the meanings of life, we want to ask a very proeminent participant in the human history. A human being who was supposed to be more than a human being, who was declared to be God visiting the earth for 33 years. And we are asking 
this person, either you were a liar, megalomanic, schizophrenic idiot who didn't know anything about anything, or you were the real deal and then would like to understand what shines through. If this man for three years and a half taught and spoke and acted, and also he is the one who is famous of having done some of the most miraculous things that we have heard about, not the only one by far, but one of the most spectacular, if not the most spectacular wonder maker, miracle maker on the face of this earth. And then we want to understand what does he say about what chakra is more important. Like if you would choose between from now on till the end of your yoga life, work on Anahata chakra or for the same period of time work on I don't know, Muladhara Chakra or Manipura Chakra, which one of them will take you closer to Jesus, to this ideal? Where is the success? How should we act? That's why I'm not reading about Jesus just because it's an odd thing to do in a yoga school where we focus on Indian yoga, on Tibetan yoga. Next week we're going to... There is a bad contact in this wire. We have to do something. So, as I'm saying, we don't do it just because it's a weird thing. Let's talk about Jesus. Even if I would be talking about Confucius. Even if I would be analyzing the life and activities of Dogen, the founder of the Zen Buddhism in Japan. The man who imported Zen Buddhism from China to Japan. Even if I would be talking about Rumi, the famous mystic, the, one of the fathers of Sufism in the world. Whoever I would be talking about, I'm talking about a proeminent person because I'm trying to see what did they have to reveal about how to live your life. In yoga, we teach you that you can do the shoulder stand, and that you can do the head stand, and that you can do the anabanda, and all these things are very beneficial, and they have great effects on your health, and moods, and mind, and a lot of other things, including on your spiritual growth or development. But just to have a theory about the anabanda doesn't show us how things are from the standpoint of life. Jesus may be a yogi, if you stretch the meaning of the word yogi. Jesus may be a yogi. Jesus may be the most perfect yogi that ever lived on the face of the earth. But at the same time, Jesus is not teaching people to do shoulder stands or pranayamas. And that's very so. Therefore, he teaches spirituality. He teaches the people to find their way. But he doesn't teach it by using uh, psychophysical methodology. Not, not because that is wrong. It's not wrong at all. Yoga is absolutely brilliant from this standpoint. That's why the combination between having the technology of the headstand and of Udhyana Banda and listening to the advice of one like Jesus is dynamite. This is spiritual dynamite. Because it shows you First of all, the indications about life from at least a great spirit. You can call Jesus at least a great spirit, if not more, much more. So it's combining that with the technology of yoga. 
Because if Jesus says you should rather be selfless on Anahata Chakra rather than being selfish on Manipura Chakra, for the people who don't know anything about yoga, that is like, how, yeah, but I'm selfish, everybody is selfish. But you in yoga, even after you have done one level of yoga, after you've done the first level, and you already know that it is possible to shift the weight, to change the gravity point, to go to diminish one chakra and to move the energy into another chakra. And if you do it for 20 years, it will become second nature. It will become permanent. It will become... Exactly like the person who is born rickety and something goes to the gym and has a sport life and develops a good skeleton and good muscles and looks good, although in the beginning many doctors said they would not. No? Like I could give examples of famous actors in Hollywood and others who when they were children, they were rickety and the doctors said that they will be sick and handicapped for their whole life. And they became action movie stars, having muscles and building up excellently, and not even by doing yoga, just by having the right diet and going to the gym. So with yoga, you can change even more. So this thing that you say, well, how do I become selfless instead of being selfish? Hey, everybody who does a bit of yoga knows the answer to that, how to move higher in your chakras and all that. And how to do that? Oh, there are techniques. The problem is you have 24 hours per day. How many of those 24 hours per day do you allot to this task? Do you allot to this goal? Like how much do I want to work so that I become more compassionate, more loving, more selfless? It's just a matter of doing it, you know. If you say I'm going to the gym 10 minutes per week, that won't make you look like uh, some Apollo, like some Greek god. You know, 10 minutes per week is not enough. But if you go two hours every day, then it does a lot, you know. So the same with yoga. Yoga also doesn't do miracles. It's a matter of applying the effort and obtaining the results proportional to the effort which you have made. That's why, please understand again that in yoga, reading some words and uh, teachings from a great guru, according to the teachings of Svadhyaya, the fourth of the Niyamas, that's a lecture which comes in week four of our cycle of four weeks, in the first level, according to Svadhyaya, reading the words puts you telepathically in contact, in touch with that person. So talking and talking and talking and splitting the hair about what Jesus said and done and what does that prove and what does that teach us automatically puts us in resonance with Jesus. And being in resonance with Jesus, in my opinion, is not at all a bad thing. It's a great thing because it gives us clarity, determination, heart, aspiration, enthusiasm for the divine things and combining these things with yoga and with other things. With Zen, with Zazen meditation, with Sufi dervish dance, whatever is a practical method that works is astonishing. To have satsang with Jesus, where Jesus is telling you about life and about the purpose of life and about what to do and why we are here, 
is a great thing. It is for such a reason that although the Gospel of Luke is just a Christian document, we are commenting on it, trying to see what we can do from the standpoint of yoga, of a yogic person, what can we do about all these things. And we had concluded with uh, Jesus preparing for the winter season, where he and the disciples, they split, and they went through the villages of Judea and Galilee and other areas around Samaria and others. Not all of them were 100% Jewish areas. There were many other types of culture around, which were called generally Gentiles, from gents like the tribes, tribal communities from the Middle East, from the Near East, and uh, they spend the winter there. But already Jesus was training them for the time when he will not be present with them on earth physically. Therefore, he gives them a sample of the goods to come. Goods to come is an ironic way of putting it, because these 12 apostles, which stayed and continued his mission, 11 of them got assassinated, murdered, some of them badly. Like Peter got crucified upside down. And only one of them did not die of a violent death. Even Thomas, who went to India, to today's Kerala, in India, he got assassinated by some imbecile. It is the talent of Jesus and of his disciples to make things black and white, to tell to people you are demonized, this is dark, this is anti-divine, and this is surely going to piss off everybody. When I do it and I speak about some people that they are demonized or something, everybody hates me for it. Everybody throws tomatoes at me because I dare to say, to lift the cover, and to simply say these are demonic influences, people are telepathically influenced to not be themselves, but to do shitty things, either when they smoke, or when they drink themselves to unconsciousness, or when they masturbate too much, or when they do this, or when they do that. It's just demonic influences, demonic influence, demonic influences. And people, of course, don't like to hear it, it provokes the hell out of them, no? And imagine what was with these people who had been with Jesus and seen him at work every day for three years, walking on water and doing all those things. And thus, um, the message of Jesus has a unique sharpness. Many other reformers, like Buddha, provoked people because he said Hinduism, the old Vedic Hinduism, was obsolete and gone. And some people hated him for it but not as much as Jesus. Like Jesus and his apostles are somewhere up there in the rank of public enemy. They were, Jesus was public enemy number one because he dared to just say it straight, to just be so direct about these things. And so Jesus sent out the 12 disciples in the villages and he gave them some advice which I commented last week, which is very interesting because it's like that advice is given to you. If you become an apostle of Christ, where should you go? Even if you are a Mormon preacher, as I said last week, who go in a Pacific island to convert to Mormonism some Polynesians in some God-forgotten island in the Pacific. How should you behave? What did Jesus say to people who would go in his name in the world 
and how should they behave. Like, should you have gold? Should you have um, Kalashnikovs with you? Should machine guns, for those of you who don't know what a Kalashnikov is, and so on and so forth. What should you do? How should you behave? If people tell you, nah, nah, we don't like you, what should you do about those people? And all that. So, he, they did that in the winter, and meanwhile we're being told that the king of Judea, of, the, of, that died, uh, of that time, he was very perplexed because he had just assassinated John the Baptist, and now a new prophet is emerging, bigger than John, John the Baptist or just baptizing people. But this dude, this new dude called Jesus, he's raising the dead from the death. It's like, it's way worse than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a lamb compared to this. This guy is a lion among men, you know. And, like, and then, the, of course, the authorities, through, through this, the authorities start getting worried. The authorities are always getting worried when these big charismatic leaders are coming up and they take over the love of the people and they tell to the rulers about their mistakes and so on. You know, if somebody would come now, if Jesus would come now and he would say the European Union is the devil, is the Babylon whore from the revelation of John and you are all and this and this and this and that, Jesus would not survive three years if he would behave as he behaved 2000. Ah, if he would come in glory, shining, you know, then of course uh, there would be a couple of idiots who will try to shoot bullets at that shining glory. But seeing that nothing happens, people would have to submit or to kind of gnash their teeth and say, fuck, he got us this time, you know. But otherwise, if Jesus would become like the son of a carpenter and go, go around for three years, they would assassinate him much, much, much earlier. You know, it would be enough that Jesus says something pejorative about black people, yellow people, uh, women, uh, Jews, something. Some of these taboos which nobody dares to break anymore. Gay and so on. And Jesus would be dead in maximum one week. You know, like the amount of hate which would be leveled at him would be like, whoa, you know, even if you are God, you can't say that because we learned in school that it's not allowed for you to comment on such subjects or to rise against such things and so on. So if Jesus would come and be intolerant about one, two, three, four, five such issues which are like people are brainwashed with it, you can't even discuss these subjects, then suddenly Jesus, three years was a miracle that he survived three years in Israel, 2,000 years ago, when he was so pum, 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 demon, demon, devil, darkness, you know, like pointing at it all the time, you know, and telling to people, stay away from that, come back to me, come back to God, you know, and mend your lives. And so, that's a very, very aggressive style. Even the yogis from India, from Tibet, they didn't do that. They were acquiring yoga and they were having one, two, three, ten disciples. They were living in an ashram, in a hermitage, in a cave. And they were not making too much fuss in the society. Like people say, why don't you say something? If I would say something, 
a yogi from India, no? it's the villagers come and say, you never um, uh, mix with us. Say something about our lives. And the yogi would say, I would have to start from the very beginning by telling you that all your lives are shit. And you are living them completely wrong. Nobody would love that yogi. No? Because then he would become Jesus number two. Because he would rub it in people's faces. He would become intolerant about the things which happen in life. And they would say, this is less than perfection. Jesus, in a certain way, is a spiritual perfectionist. Big time. No, because he even says it. Which is impossible by modern psychology. But he says it. He says to people in a group much more numerous than this one in front of me. He tells to people, he says, be perfect. As your Father in Heaven is. But nobody can be perfect. No? I, I can tell you ten imperfections about ten big gurus who lived in the 19th and 20th century. You know, Ramakrishna was smoking tobacco. That's a stupidity. Even for Ramakrishna, even when you are as big as Ramakrishna, to smoke tobacco is a complete example that even Ramakrishna can have an Achilles heel. He can be a little bit stupid somewhere. Nobody has been perfect. Not even Ramakrishna. No. And therefore, it's like Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. But you cannot. But nevertheless, he says, try. You should try. You should long to be like that. You should aspire even if you don't get there. No. And thus... The example of one like Jesus is always scaring. Always. Exception made of the people who love him and they say, yeah, I'm as crazy as this dude is. And therefore I'm going to go into his footsteps without looking to the left, without looking to the right. I'm just going to do it 100% like a fanatic. But all the others are like, um, but um, come on, because they feel threatened. They feel scared in some ways. No? And of course the authorities say, why do people love Jesus? Why don't they love me? I'm the king. They should love the king, not Jesus. Jesus is a pain in the neck. You know, he's just some aggressive preacher who preached out of, appeared out of nowhere and now is taking the affection of my people and all that. So, you got the point. And uh, then... The next paragraph which we read, and with this we are in the flow again, uh, the winter is over, and it's springtime, and they meet, and now a new season starts for Jesus and his apostles. And of course people have been in the villages, they got bored, sitting in the villages and standing the winter, and now it's springtime and they want some action. And the big star, Jesus, Jesus Christ, superstar, is there to do some noise, to make some noise. And people are going to flock in more than the previous year. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So Jesus was sometimes, we are told, it must not be the only time. Jesus was sometimes having alone time with his disciples. 
where they are telling him, I've been in this village, there was this man who was sick, I tried to pray over him as you taught me, but it didn't work quite well, the demon didn't come out, or whatever they were trying to do. I'm just raving, rambling. Now, no, and Jesus would tell them, that's because you didn't have enough faith, that's because you forgot to fast for three days before you did that, that's because of the, like, Jesus was obviously giving separate training to the apostles. No, it was not headstand or pranayama, but there was some stuff which he was teaching them, and that's why he took them separate. So even Jesus was making a very clear understanding of the fact that there is an inner circle, the initiates, and the outer circles, which are the numeraries. They are the participants, they are the sympathizers, but they are not yet committed, committed practitioners. So that is in every spirituality, the spiritual teachers have felt clearly the difference between the people who are inner circle and the people who are outside. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. So they managed to have three days alone or one week alone, and eventually the rumor went, Jesus and those 40 uh, thieves, like Alibaba and his 40 thieves, they are in Bethsaida, and uh, we want some show. We want some healing, we want some miracles, we want some teachings, because the whole winter we have been dead bored, and now we want uh, the showman, the one-man show that is called Jesus, we want him up on stage and performing. So, uh, the crowds are like this, they are gregarious, they always want something. I have seen religious manifestations in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Islam, in Christianity, I don't know if I have seen any major such manifestation in Judaism and in other religions. And it's always very gregarious. Like the masses, when they are moved by religious fervor, they become terrible. They are stampedes. People are stepping on each other. Like animals. Like an animal stampede. There have been stampedes in Indian temples and in other places where 60, 100 people were killed by their own religion fellows. By because they just trod on their bodies. They stepped on them like cows. In a cow stampede, in a bovine stampede. They just stepped on them and killed them. But not one. Imagine, you cannot kill somebody if you just by mistake step on somebody. And say, ah, oops, sorry. Must have been hundreds of people who trod on one poor guy who has fallen to the ground. Until they turned him into mashed potatoes. No, like, what are human beings? And these are religious people with religious fervor. They are just listening to the teachings of Jesus, and meanwhile they kill somebody under their feet. Simply because they say, me, me, let me go closer. I have to see, I have to hear, I, I want to touch this man, because I have some blood flowing out of me, and so on. You know, like, people are motivated by a certain kind of wild egoism, even when they do spirituality. So we see it with Jesus beautifully. I mentioned Jesus Christ Superstar 
that production of the life of Jesus is absolutely schizophrenic, or disharmonious, ugly, like it doesn't represent almost anything of what Jesus was. The music is horrible, it's a disharmonious Vadistana Manipura music. It's, it's a complete fiasco from a yogic standpoint, if you would compare it with Franco Zeffirelli's movie, you know, Jesus of Nazareth or somewhere. Indeed, the right emotion is emerging from that movie from watching those scenes and uh, but there is a beautiful scene in this Jesus Christ superstar where at some point he is simply swamped by invalids like people don't come to listen about how to change their heart how to open their heart chakra people come because my cousin Walter has a crippled arm could you please fix this that's what people care about Fixing arms, you know, Jesus for them is just a hocus-pocus guy who can fix the whole village. No? And that's he, what he, and people are ready to trample over other people's body to get to Jesus and say, can you please fix my cousin? No? It's like, this is the mission of Jesus. That's why Jesus came to earth, to fix 10,000 crippled people. I mean, for each one of them individually, it means a lot. But for the planet earth means pretty much nothing. It's a grain of dust on a beach. It's nothing, you know. So it's like obviously Jesus didn't come to heal the lepers and the cripples. No, that was just collateral. He was doing that also, but that was not the first thing for which he came. No, and people are, you know, and then Jesus in this Jesus Christ Superstar, if you see that scene, he is singing in this schizophrenic rock and roll voice. You know, hard rock something, whatever, I can't even decide. It's a sort of a jazz rock something. Some really disharmonious music, you know. And he's crying in that music voice, Oh, I'm too little and you are too many. Sure, if, imagine if Jesus would come now and would be available near the Eiffel Tower on the Champs-Élysées or Champs of Mars or whatever is there in Paris, and he would say, I'm healing, free healing. And radical, you know, like no bullshit, no some reiki, kaka maka, you know, and so on. Like real healing, you know, where Jesus puts the finger on you and you walk. You know, like not some uh, palliative care, not some placebo, not some, some, you know. Can you imagine what would happen if all the millions of cripples and lepers, okay, we don't have so many lepers today, but imagine just the cancer patients. There are probably hundreds of millions of cancer patients right now. Maybe a billion people have cancer right now. They all go to France to get healed by Jesus. Jesus, even if he spends a second on each one of them, he doesn't have time in 70 years to teach them, to heal them all. If he goes 16 hours per day and he just sleeps and then he comes back and he continues doing healing like a sewing machine. You, 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 you. And still he cannot be over. So it's right. There are too many bombarded people for just one man like Jesus. That's not, Jesus doesn't want to do a one man show. Look how great I am. I am God and I can just touch you with a finger and you are okay again. No, but they are not only cancer patients. What do you do with HIV positive? What do you do with the, died, with the ones dying from dengue and malaria? What do you do with Ebola? What do you do with, I don't know, there are people who are dying of hepatitis and others. There are a million diseases killing us. Heart disease is the second largest killer on the face of the earth, you know. Can Jesus heal them all? Obviously not. So people missed the point completely because Jesus didn't come like a healer. 
Healing was his third or fourth priority on the list. He was doing something else. But people were chasing him. No? And you can imagine that people were not chasing him for going in Samadhi. Because eventually there were 12 people who went in Samadhi. The 12 apostles went in Samadhi on the day of the Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus passed away. Then the Holy Spirit came and they got enlightened and they were speaking in tongues and doing funny things. But there must have been thousands and thousands of people that saw Jesus. Why didn't they go to Samadhi? Try to think about it. People were not interested in Samadhi. And here, of course, Jesus is just coming up and proving exactly the point. He welcomed them. Of course, Jesus would always welcome. Like somebody wants to talk to God, God is not turning you back. Like, speak, ask, do, let's see. You know, you are welcome. Yeah, but you know, I've killed 35 people like Milarepa. It doesn't matter. Come, still come. Rumi has a wonderful poem, which I would love to quote, but I cannot quote it by heart. Some of you know it, which says, come, come, come. Come to God, come to me, come to us. It doesn't matter of what religion you are, even if you are not Muslim or something, still come, come, come. Come to, you know, like he's inviting. He says, you have sins, you are ugly, you are this, you are that. Come, come, come. Come out of the darkness, come to the light, come and interact with the divine, you know. Of course that you can say, but don't I do that if I pray? Yeah, the question is, any one of you in this room, and it's a rhetorical question. It's, we are on video and I don't need a show of hands. But it's a rhetorical How many minutes have you spoken to God this one week? In the last seven days. Actual minutes where you have spoken to God. You have said, God, I'm a piece of shit. I feel like shit. Can you please help me? I don't believe in you anymore. I don't... Like whatever you have done, but just speaking to God. Even... Shit quality prayer. Shit quality prayer. You know, this is shit quality prayer. That you just talk like a nerd to God. And you, but at least it has the merit that it comes from your heart and it's sincere and it's pure. It's not some, you're not faking anything. It's you truly trying to speak to God. You know, it, even when we are sincere, of course, we don't fully see Everything which is there. Because we lie to ourselves. We are full of hypocrisy. We try to hide things and so on. But at least it's an attempt. No? And therefore, Rumi, like Jesus, says, Come, come, come. Get on your knees or start spinning around like Rumi says, you know, and talk to God. Say something to God. Say at least a standard formula. Like, our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you don't have words, repeat somebody else's words. Repeat some archetypal words. Just do it. No? How many people are actually doing it? People are not doing it. So Jesus is like God is in flesh. And you can talk to Him. You know, when people talked to Jesus, they act for those three years and a half, they actually prayed. Every minute of talking to Jesus was prayer. Even if people didn't realize it. Because they were talking to God. And God was kind of ping pong. You know. Immediately reverting it. And say yeah but then you should do like this. Yeah but you should stop doing that. Yeah but that is wrong. And like immediately God was mirroring it to them. 
and giving to them what they needed to hear and so on. So Jesus welcomed them. You can say maybe he was bored, maybe he was tired, maybe he had the flu. Maybe, you know, like we can jokingly say, maybe he had the flu or something. If he was making pee and caca and eating food, then probably he could have had the flu as well, you know. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, Jesus was always welcoming people. Sometimes he took a bit of free time and he ran away. You know, but he couldn't afford to do much. And his life was in the fast lane. Three years and a half to change the world, you know, so there was not much time. So he was Mr. 100,000 volts, you know, he was there all the time, pushing all the time. So he welcomed them and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was doing. First of all, putting the carrot in front of people, like there is a thing called the kingdom of God. And wouldn't you like to go there? Wouldn't you like to be there? Wouldn't you like to... No, and most people would say, yeah, sure, what do I have to do? And then there would come the hard part, the actual doing it. So he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Like if you speak about the kingdom of God and you cannot heal people, no, let's say one of you would say, now, Swamiji, you are supposed to be some holy man of yoga or something. You are talking to us implicitly, second-hand, about the kingdom of God or the state of samadhi or so. Uh, this person here in the room has a cancer. Can you heal this person first so we can believe that you know what you are talking about? If I cannot address a cancer in a yogic way, then many people will say, this guy is just ba 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 He cannot walk the talk. He can just do the talk. But he doesn't know what he's talking about because he cannot do anything. Ah, if Jesus would have been here, he would have talked to us about it and then healed a couple of cancer people just to show us that he is on the horse, that he is standing tall and he knows what he is dealing about. So you can understand very clearly that from the standpoint of Jesus, this thing with the healing is both an act of mercy and compassion but it's also excellent PR. It's the most excellent PR in the world. Because every time somebody contradicts him, you know, he touches a person and the person walks and he says, take this one. You know, like, argue with me. You know, uh, you did some more, I raised somebody from the grave. There's another one for you to digest, you know, to chew on it, you know. How, how can you compete with somebody who raises the dead? and walks on water. No? There is no way to compete with such a person. You know? And that's why for Jesus, this is a sort of a hammer, a heavy hammer instrument, by which he hammers into people's disbelief. Even with this hammer, when he was brought in front of Pontius Pilate, and the crowds, and Pontius Pilate asked, uh, tell us, who should I release for you? This patriot called Barabbas, who is a terrorist, or Jesus, who is a hippie philosopher or something. And the people asked for Barabbas to be liberated. More than 51% in that plaza, they shouted, Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. As about Jesus, hey, fuck him, crucify him. You know, It's like, see if we care. Like people abandoned Jesus, although Jesus was walking on water and raising the dead. 
Therefore, this is what humanity is made of. And that was 2,000 years ago. Ever since then, we have gone deeper into what the yogis of India call Kali Yuga. We are deeper in the shit, in the darkness of Kali Yuga. <coughs> so, Jesus did his action. Teaching, advising, and occasionally healing. Late in the afternoon, so it's very precise, you know, like they found out, they went, it was a morning, he taught the whole morning, late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Uh, we are being told later that they were like, I don't know, basketfuls of leftovers. The leftovers were basketfuls and that in the crowd there were thousands of people, but please be attention, the Jews never counted the women and the children. So if they say there were 5,000 people, there were 5,000 men plus the corresponding number of women and children. So when they say there are 5,000 people, it can easily mean that there are 12,000 people there. So we are talking about numbers of people which are around 10,000. The villages in Judea or in wherever part of Israel they were, in that time, they cannot take 10,000 people. A village is something which contains 300 people. If it contains 1,000 people, it would be almost like Jerusalem. It would be considered a city. So when uh, in a village of 500 people there come 10,000 guests in an area which is dry, desert, like food was not abundant in Palestine in those days. Today the Jews have invested in irrigation systems and they have scientific agriculture and they produce a lot of vegetables and a lot of things. And still more than half of Israel is desert, is complete dry desert. Land is not very hospitable in that part of the world. So there is not abundance of food. And therefore, in these conditions, you know, like 10,000 people, is like the locusts have invaded the place. They are going to eat even the ear lobes of the villagers. You know, as, as an expression in Romania, when you have many children and you don't have food in the house, you say, my children are going to chew on my ear lobes. You know, it's like they are going to eat everything, like grasshoppers, you know. The same would have happened there. So the disciples were right. They were looking at things economically, materialistically, realistically. They said, what are we? You are crazy and you have gathered around you 10,000 people. Now what are you going to do with them? Because they are going to curse this place. 10,000 people have to make pipi, caca, eat, sleep, do everything. It's like imagine what they will do around here. It's like Woodstock or something, you know. It's just it's a nightmare. What's going to happen here? No. And he says, send them away. Like at least have a mercy and tell them, guys, go find a village 10 kilometers from here. Go eat, sleep, come again tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. I'll be happy to talk to you more. But, you know, like, do something. Jesus replied absurdly. Absurdly is not in the Bible, it's my word. Yeah? He replied, parenthesis by Swami Vivekananda, apparently absurdly, by saying, you give them something to eat. 
Are you nuts? We're talking about 5,000 men plus women plus chilek. Who can give something to eat? No? Make a birthday party and invite 10,000 people, see what's going to happen. You know, it's like, you can't give them anything to eat. They answered, we have two. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. And says the parenthesis, about 5,000 men were there. Which means more than 10,000 people. All in all. Then they had five pieces of bread. Some of this round bread, pita bread, typical Middle Eastern bread. And two fish. I want from the very beginning, because we come to this story with the fish. And I'm a yogi, and I'm a vegetarian. And um, we preach vegetarianism. And there is always this story. What about seafood? What about fish? Some people are arguing about dairy products like butter and milk and so on. Some people are arguing about eggs. Like diet, human diet is very, very different. People put the borderline in different places. And this story with the fish, many people, when they retort to me, they say, yeah, you are a yogi and you preach some harmonious way of diet or something. But look at Jesus who was the most divine person on earth or in the top five, in the top ten, He condoned fish in human diet. So why shouldn't the yogis eat a little bit fish now and then? You know, if Jesus himself said you can become perfect and go to God while you are eating fish. First of all, I repeat something which we say in our lecture in Agama in the first level about vegetarianism. It also depends on what the geographical conditions are. Even in Tibet they sometimes ate meat. Because there was no place to produce cereals and bread, and there was no land for agriculture, plus that it was 4,000 meters high, and there nothing grows at those heights, or extremely, with extreme difficulty. And moreover, or if you'd be living in Greenland, old days, a hundred years ago, Greenland, now I'm sure that they have Tesco in Greenland or something, but, and they can buy peaches from Chile. You know, but in the old days, a hundred years ago, if you didn't eat bear and seal and other meat from wild animals which the Eskimos were hunting, you would not eat anything and you would die. You would freeze. So, of course, if Jesus or Krishna or somebody would come to the Eskimos in a visit, they will tell them, well, this is your diet. This is what you have to eat because otherwise you have to emigrate to tropical lands or to European lands or something. The same here. First of all, realize that 2,000 years ago, the Palestinians, the Israelis, all the nations living in that area, because there are several nations living there, in that area, they were unable to survive without fish. Without fish, they would not have enough food, and especially some proteins or something, no, you move just a hundred kilometers some other part of the world, it's like the hanging gardens of Babylon. You know, it's lush and it's, you know, in the valley of the Nile or in Europe or something, there is agriculture. Not in Palestine 2,000 years ago without irrigation systems and stuff like this. And therefore, uh, it appears that Jesus was like, 
Sure, that's what people eat in this part of the world, and there is nothing to do. Remember, today most of you live in a world and in a system where you could have all your necessary of proteins and vitamins and all that without eating even fish. I am not completely against it. In my 30-something years of vegetarianism, I had one year where a medical doctor convinced me to try eating fish two times per week just because of some medical theories that it brings you some of these omega oils and just to regulate things in the metabolism. I didn't manage to do it quite two times per week because I'm, uh, I, I was not very much into it. I did it, nevertheless. So in 35 years, there was one year where I was not strictly vegetarian. For test, not because I drooled for fish, but just for a medical reason, just to verify. It was inconclusive. I didn't draw any good conclusions. I didn't see any radical positive effects, not even minor positive effects, and then I stopped it. I'm vegetarian again after all those years, you know, simply because I did not get convinced by the facts. I tried experimentally, and after 20 years of vegetarianism, I would have seen the effects immediately. Like something in my body would have changed immediately, you know, in one year. And it didn't change in any way, and nothing to the better or anything. And therefore, I simply drew my conclusion and said, failed experiment, abort. And thus, I'm again, I'm not against it, I'm very open-minded. I used to teach that vegetarianism is the healthiest way of eating and so on, which could be true, but when you eat vegetarian food uh, sprayed by Monsanto with chemicals, then your vegetarian food is more toxic sometimes than meat and other things. Moreover, um, simple experiments shows that this is not a true statement. The people who live longest on the face of this earth, naturally, statistically, the group of people who live the longest life expectation on this earth are the women from Okinawa. And the women from Okinawa, who most of them go beyond 100 years of age, they eat seafood and fish. Especially in the Japanese style, which means raw. Like sort of sushi, raw kind of thing. Can I, as an intelligent person, say that vegetarianism is the most long-lived? Uh, no, because experiments on groups of population on Earth shows that those people who eat that they seem to be the healthiest and the longest lived. It doesn't make me go non-vegetarian. Because my purpose in life is not to live 105 years. Like the people from Okinawa. No? So it's not, that's not why I live. Therefore, for me, vegetarianism has many other meanings. But look here. Here is one of the shocking examples where we see Jesus, he with his own hand, so to speak, he gives fish to the people. The only possibility this is wrong is there is a mistranslation, which is 99% impossible. It has been stated, there is a gospel, and I always forget which one of them, there are two, there are 15 apocryphal gospels, and two of them are called, one of them is called the gospel of truth. It's not in the Bible, they are apocryphal, outside. 
unrecognized texts by the Catholic and Orthodox Church. So one of them is called the Gospel of the Truth and the other one of them is called the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles. And in one of them, I, I always forget which is which, in one of them Jesus is described as doing a lot of healing. He is even described advising people to put tubes up their ass and perform colonics. Some sort of primitive Palestinian colonics 2,000 years ago. So like when we read that Jesus healed and healed and healed, we are not told. Maybe to some people he recommended colonics and a good diet. And then they got healed. You know? And people said, wow, great, this healer is great. No, but he didn't do it like, whoa, now you are healed, you know. He sometimes probably used common sense and primitive medical methods, which for people were a miracle anyway, uh, or like a miracle anyway. And uh, this translator of the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles, or the other one, uh, he insists a lot in the foreword to the translation. He says that in Aramaic language, where all these texts were written first, there is a word which I don't remember, Alabala, Portokala, Abracadabra, there is a word which when it is used, it means sort of a side dish or something which you put besides your broth. It's like an addition to food. And that's like exactly like you'd say, I went to a restaurant and I took a beef steak and near the beef steak they gave me green peas, boiled carrot and some potatoes, french fries or something. And that's a side dish to eat with a Beefsteak. Here, there is such a word for the side dish in the Aramaic language, and that side dish, according to the, because Aramaic is still being spoken in some parts of Syria, and there are a few villages that still speak Aramaic. It's not a completely dead language today. And in, um, in that language, when you use that word, that word can mean fish. Because you have a broth and you put some fish because that's the protein part. But it can also mean grapes. Grapes, like the grapes from which you do wine. And it can also mean in general a side dish like boiled vegetables or something. So this guy who is probably a, was probably the translator of this Gospel of the Twelve. Who was a fanatic vegetarian probably he felt the need to say that we don't even know for sure if Jesus um, was preaching fish or giving fish or something, or if he didn't multiply bread and grapes. Because ultimately when Jesus left the planet Earth, he left as symbol of divinity the bread and the wine. The bread as symbol of his flesh, and the wine a symbol of his blood. And the, blood, the wine is obtained from grapes. It's a product of grapes. So bread and wine are supposed to be a sort of a radical, simplified diet. I was laughing with some people. We watched a movie not long time ago where I revealed to them that bread and wine was the diet of Michelangelo, the famous Michelangelo, he lived on bread and wine when he was painting the Sistine Chapel. I mean, if you drink just wine, you would be drunk most of the time. And bread and wine. That man was on bread and wine. He was vegetarian in this way as well. 
Yeah? So there is this understanding that we don't talk about bread and fish. We talk about bread and grapes or bread and wine or something there related. I personally am in grave doubt if the, I wish as a yogi that it was true and that there is not fish but it is grape or something like this. It would satisfy my vegetarian side. But uh, it probably is not true because we live, we read other episodes where Jesus even impels people to go out in the lake and fish. And there we cannot talk about grapes anymore. It's actually fishing. Fishing is fishing. Is fishing. So, therefore, I suspect my understanding of it is that Jesus in these special climate conditions and geographical conditions of Palestine without modern irrigation and without Tesco and Big C and stuff like this, Jesus was actually condoning fish. And in this way we can say God was condoning the eating of fish. And the disciples therefore they take it materialistically. They say we have five breads and two fish. You know, it's like... Let's go and buy. It's interesting. It must be that they had some money. Because how would you even conceive of buying food for 5,000 people or 10,000 people? Like how much food? How many tons of food does that mean? No? So, but they still brought it up. They, probably they had some money. People were giving them donations or something. And they said, uh, well, unless we go and buy some food and so on. You know? They were confused. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So, done in a very engineering way. Like Jesus is so, maybe it's true that he was born in December. Some people say he was born on the 4th of January or something, which would not change anything from the standpoint of astrology. Because in both cases, he would be a Capricorn. Everybody knows Capricorns are some of the most pragmatical people in the world. No? Like Jesus here is pragmatical. He makes workshops with the people. He says these 5,000 people put them in groups of 50. No? Because otherwise he knows there will be chaos. People will be fighting for it. They would be trampling on each other. There would be So he organizes things in a very down-to-earth way. The disciples did so and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, which obviously was a consecration, a prayer, an opening up. He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Here the story becomes idiotic. Like he took the five pieces of bread and he blessed them and he broke them. And he, but when the, if there were 5,000 men... There were groups of 50, there must have been a hundred groups. What do you mean he broke five breads and gave them to people, to the disciples to give them? It means he was giving them constantly, 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 constantly. And they took them to each group, to each group. How much food you need to give for 50 people to eat and to leave some leftovers as they did in the end? A lot! Which means that in the hands of Jesus, those breads were materializing. It's a city which even some yogis, even the modern Sai Baba and a few others claim to have this city that they could materialize objects out of the blue. 
and in the language of yoga, the great yogis described it, that it's a, it's a siddhi which comes from Vishuddha Chakra. Vishuddha Chakra contains this extraordinary radical siddhi that you pick up the archetypal forms from Akasha Tattva, where the archetypes and the patterns, the blueprints of everything which exists on, in this world exist, and you will take it and according to that blueprint, you would start making them one, two, a hundred, a million, you know, you would just produce them. And where would the matter come from? From the universe, you know, it's like, you can't explain the process. The process of materialization and dematerialization, it is studied even in parapsychology. It's a very, very rare and very exclusive phenomenon, but even parapsychologists mention it, that in certain circumstances with certain exceptional people, there have been instances of objects disappearing, going into the void, dematerializing, and objects materializing, out of the blue, out of nowhere, which of course is not out of nowhere, it's out of a deeper layer of the universe. So this miracle which Jesus did, besides the fact that it had huge social implications, like no, everybody is fighting for food, and look, you just believe in God, and the food is coming. There is no starvation. Starvation is only the consequence of sin. The fact that people starve and then they die, it's because they are not with God. If they would be with God, they would be fed. Centuries later, four centuries later, there was this guy whose name I forgot who met St. Mark of Ethiopia, a saint coming from the Middle East who ran in the south in Africa and he was living in today's Eritrea or Ethiopia uh, in, in the Horn of Africa. And uh, the one who moved the mountain accidentally, practically, and this guy was living alone in a cave and this guy found out that he had been in the world 90 years ago. He was 138 years old. So even biologically there was some kind of, you must be kidding me, you know. Because they asked him, this guy asked him, who are you? And he said, I was the captain of the guard of Emperor Patroclus II. And this guy knew Patroclus II was emperor 90 years ago. So this guy was the bodyguard of an emperor who lived 90 years ago. You know, like, and, and then he was 38 or 48 years old when he left the palace and ran in the desert. So this guy was anyway a living miracle. And uh, after they talked a little bit, this guy said, Brother, I assume you are hungry. You must have traveled a long way to come find me in this wilderness and so on. And then he turned up like this and he said, Brother, lay, lay out the table, lay, out, lay up the table. And the pair of hands, which are like angel hands, appeared out of the blue and they materialized a tablecloth and they put food on it. In the middle of the desert, on a mountain in Ethiopia. And these guys, they ate and then the same hands appeared and they pulled it back. Like this guy had angels who were materializing food for him in a fucking cave in Ethiopia. You know? It's like, that's what we're talking. So, materialization, dematerialization, 
is known in parapsychology. It's not the only place where we're talking about it. The only thing is that here, here does it in front of 10,000 people and in, uh, Jesus does it in huge amounts. Imagine how much bread and fish or grapes or whatever he had to produce to fulfill 10,000 hungry people. And so, he gave thanks and broke them, because that was a Jewish ritual, and then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. But, like five? No, 55,000 breads were there. So he gave and gave and gave. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Only the leftovers were 12 baskets. Can you imagine what an amount of bread and fish was there? All of it coming from the Vishuddha of Jesus Christ. Pouring like a river. Like God manifesting the world. Materialization, you know. Directly. Boom. Energy becoming matter. Something materializing in this world. What was it before? archetypes or archetypal energy or basic energy of the universe, whatever Jesus was converted into that, he never explained. But the yogis, because there are there were yogis in history who claimed that they could understand or even do such things. So as I said, uh, it is alleged that other paranormal people and great yogis and others may have achieved this gift of materialization and dematerialization. Of course, they did not have a warrant from God to do it openly in front of 5,000 people and change their belief system. That they were not allowed to do. But it doesn't say that in the loneliness of their own life they could not do it they could not reach it. And as I said earlier, in probably the book of Borges, a short novel by Borges called The Rose of Paracelsus, where a disciple comes to Paracelsus, the famous medieval alchemist, and say, they say you have, have the philosopher's stones and the, all these gifts, uh, and that you can materialize, dematerialize, make gold, whatever, and therefore I'm just asking you to do one proof to me, and if you are the real deal, I shall be your disciple. And uh, Paracelsus says, no, 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 it doesn't work like this, that you are asking me to dance a jig, and I perform miracles from you, and then you deign to become my disciple. You know, it doesn't go that way. You just imagine that I'm going to play that game, because I'm not interested in you to be my disciple. You are interested to be my disciple, if you want, and if you don't want... Just go your way and come back when you are ready. Come back when you have the aspiration for it. And uh, the guy insists. It's the, in the novel they argue back and forth why it should be okay to do it and why it shouldn't be okay to do it. And then the disciple takes a rose and burns it. Puts it in the oven and it burns in the fire. And as it burns into the fire, it becomes ashes. It gets burned to ashes. And now Paracelsus... And eventually he doesn't do it. He stays adamant on his position. So the disciple-to-be, he's very disappointed, and eventually he stands up and walks. And as he walks, when he has walked out, and Paracelsus is alone, he smiles, he takes the ashed rose in his hand, he says a few words, 
and it becomes a rose again. He materializes it again. Like he could do it, but he didn't need to make any demonstration to anybody. That was not the purpose of that level of consciousness. So, uh, materialization and dematerialization of objects or of one's own body, as Jesus does later as well, is known in history, and it's not only to Jesus. I told you last time, and two, two weeks ago, this thing with the resurrection of people, bringing people back from the grave, this is the absolute landmark, the trademark of Jesus. But uh, some levitation or some walking on water or some, I'm saying pejoratively, right? Because they are big, incomprehensible things. And materializing and dematerializing things, they have been seen and heard before. Even the science of parapsychology, which is a contested fringe science, even the science of parapsychology accepts that there can be a study of materialization and dematerialization. They can't understand how, but they accept that the phenomenon has been reported multiple times, and thus, there must be something to it. So, Jesus is the one who does a sort of a mass materialization. Like, people would materialize a rose, like in the Borges story. Jesus materializes 10 tons of bread and 5 tons of fish. And the fish is fresh. No, because what if he was materializing stinky fish, rotten fish, stale fish brought from some uh, warehouse in Valhalla, you know, or something, you know? No, these are fishes which are created specially for this. They are materialized right then, like God creates them like this. And thus, this is a formidable lesson. Jesus tells to people later, one does not live only with bread. And because of bread, people convert to a religion, or they listen to bullshit, or they they say, if we don't do it, we'll have no bread. But Jesus says, believe in God and the bread is coming from your Vishuddha. All these phenomena that people don't eat, like Giribala and Therese Neumann, and some of the Bretarians who live today in the world and so on, it's all about Vishuddha Chakra. Even when they don't know. I met Jasmuhin and a few others, these people living with light and so on, they didn't know in particular that the energy and the phenomenon came from their Vishuddha. It did come from their Vishuddha, but they didn't realize because they could not feel their Vishuddha. And the phenomenon was happening, but they didn't realize where it was coming from. And thus, uh, Vishuddha Chakra can rematerialize your body. Theoretically, if you would have this gift, you could regenerate your body every one year and be eternally young. Because those fishes of Jesus, they were not getting old. Even one year later, Jesus could produce more fish, and again it would be fresh and new. So, what if you apply the same technology to your body? Then you stay forever young, like Babaji, the guru of the guru of the guru of Paramahamsa Yogananda. So, in this way, all the laws of biology and physics and this, they can be violated completely. 
No? So here we are talking about so-called cities, paranormal abilities, which are way above the top. Like anybody would say, if anybody would have this power and use it consistently, like imagine you'd go in Africa where 10,000 people die of hunger every day. You'd go there and start producing every day food for 10,000 dying people. No, it's like, wow. And if 10,000 people die, it was said but 10, 15 years ago that there were 30,000 people dying of hunger, of hunger alone, every day on earth. It's a staggering number. You know, we complain that 3,000 people were bombed in the Twin Towers. They are important just because they were American citizens. But in Africa, 30,000 die every day, and nobody says anything. Just a few institutions who try to feed some hungry children, how many they manage. 30,000 are out of the scope, and they cannot. Even if today the number has become 10,000, still it's 10,000 per day. It's a staggering, shocking number. So then you can say, how can God say that he, if there is a God, if that God is compassionate and loving, when today... 10,000 people, most of them children, died in Africa and Asia. That's the places where people die most, Africa and Asia. No? Most of them Africa. Like, how can God sit and look at 9,000 children dying of hunger when His own Son, Jesus, had the capacity to just multiply them like He was vomiting them out of the Akasha Tadva? He was vomiting them out of the creative void, you know. Like, wouldn't that be charity and love? Apparently you don't understand the divine consciousness if you think that God should do that. Because that's not exactly what is not happening. And please ask yourselves, why isn't it happening? Why there is war and famine and epidemics and violence, and social violence, and so many other things, if God is so loving and merciful and compassionate. That's the main reason why the people who are atheistic, they say, I can't believe in God, if there is a God which allows that to happen in Africa. Because these people think that God should think the way they think. If I would be God, I would feel the ch uh, feed the children in Africa. I can only say, thank God that you are not God, because with your attachment and with your desires, you would create hell in the whole universe. There is a reason why the divine consciousness cannot do that. But here Jesus is showing you the world to be, the kingdom of heaven, that bread is not the problem. Bread and fish is not the problem. The problem is that people are not truly with God as He is. Because when you are with God as He was, is, then it, this thing doesn't matter. You are hungry, you just say, brother, lay the table, you know, and the angels materialize it for you. The food is not a problem. Maintaining your physical body in this world is not a problem. Please think deeply about this, because in this story of Jesus, there is something very deep happening. As Jesus does this, He opens the gate, then He can say, uh, in the next two years, when Jesus was still... Uh, didn't some people die of hard starvation in Palestine? Probably. 
So why didn't Jesus run from village to village and say, Hey, is there somebody hungry here? Blue, here is bread and fish for you. Blue, here is bread and fish for you. You know, like, why did God, if He was God, allow that even while He was walking on the face of the earth, just a hundred kilometers around, people were dying of starvation when He is demonstrating that food can pour out of heaven, you know. Food, food can be just manifested, materialized. Then why not materialize it non-stop? Do like Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali in the garden of his house, he had a fountain, like the Italian fountains, only it was with Coca-Cola. It was a fountain with Coca-Cola because it was Salvador Dali. You know? So why not have Coca-Cola fountains in the world, you know? And Fanta, and Schweppes, and you know, I don't want the competition to kill me, that I mention only Coca-Cola. Pepsi-Cola also, you know? Everything, all the drinks, healthy and unhealthy, chemical or not chemical, mineral water, bubbling water, fizzy water, everything for everybody, just given by God. Which shows you that we live on a planet where we don't deserve that. We live on a planet where our karma is shitty. We live on a planet which is half hell. When you think about how six million Cambodian people killed two million Cambodian people, you realize that we live in something which is close to hell. Close to hell. You know, that a nation of six million people can kill two million people of its own nation and then now pretend that they are a tourist destination, go to Cambodia and see Angkor Wat. It's one of the places of the biggest holocausts and murders in the recent history of mankind. If you would be a moral person, I don't want to be the enemy of the tourist department of Cambodia, you shouldn't go there for anything, you know. It's exactly like you would be going and visiting the followers of SS and Gestapo who will have museums in Auschwitz and something like this, you know. It's like you wouldn't do that because you'd say, I'm sponsoring the most terrible assholes in the history of the world, you know. It's like, go and do tourism in Cambodia because the four million people who are now in Cambodia are the ones who killed two other million who are no more because they didn't want to listen to the teachings of Stalin and Mao Zedong and Karl Marx. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? You know? So, Jesus is showing very clearly you know, that the problem is like we could live in paradise. Food is not the issue. Because people say, Jesus, we followed you, we listened to your rambling, and now we are hungry. And we have children, and they are hungry. So you see, when somebody does spirituality, somebody cannot also have a family life and take care. And Jesus says, nonsense. The problem is not the family life. The problem is, the problem is that you are not like this. Be like this and your Vishuddha Chakra will materialize food on the table in front of you and you'll eat it. And the truth is that if your, if your Vishuddha Chakra is so open, you don't even need to materialize it anymore. It materializes directly in your body. And these are the people called Bretharians and others who have lived for years without food, without 
food. Therese Neumann was taking the bread from the communion. This little wafer of bread, which is like one gram, two grams of cereal, per week, every Sunday she was taking communion. That was the only thing which she was taking. And she was working in the field. She was working in the garden. Like she was not a vegetable, skinny, like boat people, and lying down in her bread and saying, oh, don't move me, I'm just eating one wafer per week, I have to spare my energy. No, I have to economize, save on it. She was working physically. And every Thursday evening, she saw Jesus being crucified, and she was sweating and bleeding more than one kilo. She lost more than one kilo of blood and sweat every Thursday evening. And on Sunday she was eating two grams of bread. And then she was not eating anything. The Gestapo has even put her under house arrest and they surrounded the house to make sure that she was not cheating. And even the police of Hitler confirmed that this woman was not cheating. She was locked with soldiers around her house and room and she was not having one milligram of food. She was not even eating a leaf from a tree in the garden. She was not eating anything. And she was fat. And she was working in the fields. And she was bleeding and sweating more than one kilo every week. And still her weight was constant. That's what Vishuddha could do. That's what alchemy could do. This is already, we are talking about a city which is of a very high order. Like if anybody would have the, you know, today they speak in science fiction movies about 3D printers. Oh my God, we are really advanced. We have got 3D printers. And maybe you can even print a new pair of kidneys on it and then put them inside your body. Are you kidding me? The ultimate 3D printer is Jesus. Jesus is 3D printing breads and fish as much as you want. God can 3D print for you anything you want. But the problem is that you have to be there. You have to be in that grace. And that grace is earned with great difficulty. Because most human beings, they are like worms. They crawl on the surface of the earth. And their problem is that the neighbor has a little bit more than me. And I hate my neighbor because he or she has more than me. That's the level of consciousness of humanity. You know, instead of realizing what Jesus says. People, there is no limit. Like if you can materialize bread and fish, why shouldn't you materialize furniture Louis XV? Some of the most sophisticated and expensive French furniture. You know, you want to live in a house with... First you materialize the house. And then you materialize French furniture in it. And don't forget to add some Persian carpet, so it should be really comfortable. And materialize some wood in the storehouse, so you have to burn in your fireplace. And materialize some vegetables in the kitchen. And then you live in the castle of your dreams. Theoretically, if this is true, then that dream is also true. It could be true. Everything is possible. Jesus shows them that don't cry that economically or materially or this, you have shortcomings. You don't. 
You don't. The sky is the limit. He fed 10,000 people virtually and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. But it's funny. Try to realize implicitly that he asked the disciples to bring him the leftovers. Why? Because he could have said, I gave them food. Like, who the heck cares about some brims, some bits of bread left all over the place? But this bread was coming from the void. This bread was coming from Akasha. It was a special bread. And we don't even know what he did with those 12 baskets. Why did he ask the disciples, please, after people finish, please go with baskets and take the leftovers? Because these leftovers are something else. They are intruders in this world. They have been brought in this world extra, additionally to the economy of the game. They have been brought by exception, by miracle, by divine command, by Jesus. And then maybe he took them back, the leftovers, or something. We don't know. But it's interesting that he takes the pains to organize the people, and then after he takes the pains to gather the leftovers, which means there is something special about the leftovers. No? And if you materialize it, you must also take it out, because otherwise you disturb a certain balance of forces in this universe. You say, nothing is lost and nothing is gained. The sum total of matter is the same. If some matter is brought forth, then some matter has to be given back as well. There is a balance between the non-manifestation and the manifestation. Between the subtle worlds and the physical world. Jesus introduced artificially a ton of bread and a ton of fish in the physical world. Then, as God... He knows that he has to restore the balance in a way in which the human mind does not see it, does not understand it. He did not gather the leftovers just to brag about it. No? There was something, there is a magic, a supreme magic there. So, he, this miracle is ultimate. Because it shows that when people complain about material problems, it's not accurate. People say, I can't do yoga because I don't have food or money. Or, that's not true. You just want to believe in that truth and you make it be your reality. No? These people said, Jesus, we followed you and now it's too late to go to a village. My children are hungry. How much sacrifices I and my family have to do to listen to this weird guy called Jesus? But no, Jesus says there is no problem. If you would be listening like this all the time, every day there would be food from God. No, If tomorrow you are here with me, I make another five tons of bread and five tons of fish. That's not the problem. For God, that's not a problem. The problem is that tomorrow you won't be here. You won't listen. You won't, you know, and then it's like, oh, but still give us the bread and the fish. We are going to play some roulette in the casino. You know, we, come, we get drunk, we party, we break all the divine laws, but the Jesus, you keep materializing that bread and fish. That was a great thing. Keep going, keep going, you know. No, only if you are there with Jesus. Like as the Jews said, the Jewish God is a jealous God. 
It says, if you love me and if you seek for me, I pour blessings over you. And if you don't, then just go and see. You know, go in the world and knock your head against the walls and see the, your consequences. No? Like uh, Jesus, is, uh, I'm sorry, God and Jesus implicitly in the Jewish mentality is jealous. Like wants your attention, wants your aspiration. And then he's ready to talk to you. And he's ready to materialize bread and fish for you or whatever. But if you don't pay attention, then the divine consciousness will not do it for free. Right? It is when in the Bible we are being said, and that's a very profound understanding, that when the first man was chased out of paradise, I'm talking about Adam together with Eve, when he was chased out, God told him, with the sweat of your brow, are you going to earn your living in the world? That's a curse. Because Jesus doesn't have to sweat his brow. In the kingdom of heaven, nobody has to. In Shambhala, people don't work for bread. It's there already. But the ignorant man, when man separates himself from God by disobedience, like in the case of Adam, God gives him a punishment. And that punishment is like an Ajna Chakra wrap. It's like a dome of energy over the whole planet. The whole planet is submitted to that. The curse of man, according to the Bible, to the book of Genesis, is this. By the sweat of your brow shall you earn your living. That's why the whole humanity is condemned to work like slaves. Only when you become the son of God... This doesn't apply to you anymore. But for the ignorant humanity, with the sweat of your brow, you have to work in whichever way. Either you are an employee or a freelance or a capitalist or an investor or whatever sort. You have to work your ass. You have to work. And that's why the people who don't work, they have an interest in karma. No? We are very jealous and envious on the people that have money. And it's true that some of the people that have money, it's blood money. It's not good money. It's money which was done from very miserable things. There are other people for whom it's less of that. And then the question is why some men and women don't have to sweat their brow at all. They have money for 30 lifetimes from now on. They couldn't care less. They, if they don't want, they don't work one day in their lives. That's the condition of being the son of God, the child of God, the chosen ones, the saved ones. That's the existential condition of paradise. But most people on the planet Earth, they are not in paradise. No? And you can see it in so many ways. You know, Muktananda, who most of you know, the, who is one of very, very great, the greatest senior teacher in the school right now, you know, he was saying, he said, Swamiji, I meditated on this, and he said, we do yoga, we teach yoga, we do tantra, we teach tantra, and we also get paid for it, and we live in paradise, far from pollution. It's like, how nice it is to be a yogi. That's why I say, why don't you make yourselves yoga teachers, all of you?
No. So you don't have to sweat your brow working for shell oil or something like this. Live like the birds. Live in another way. Live doing what you want to do. Live doing what your soul tells you to do. No? And on top of it, somehow God creates a living for you. Thus, it's an interesting meditation because here Jesus brings it to the most scary thing. Like I don't have bread on my table. What shall I eat tomorrow? But look what Jesus did. Therefore we know that it is possible. And if it's possible then why not you? Why not make it happen in a virtual way in your life? Sometime, somehow. Enough of that. This great miracle of Jesus, which is again one of the shocking big ones of Jesus, is bringing us a lot of issues, is bringing up a lot of issues for meditation concerning also life on earth. Let us stop now, enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining and listening to these things. These are satsangs, so it has no Q&A. If you have questions, always on Tuesdays on questions and answers, you can come and materialize some of those questions. With this, we have finished for now.